0: This is Feminist Food Journal, and as part of our milk issue, we're examining the gendered and racialized dimensions of milk. Do enough research on the subject of milk, and soon, you'll start to question many things you thought you knew about the liquid, both its history and what it means to us in society today. Growing up in Canada, I remember my weekly session of watching The O.C. being punctuated by a series of commercials featuring cavemen in various situations of prehistoric danger. It was produced by the British Columbian Dairy Foundation. In each variation of the commercial, a hapless caveman is ruined by his decision to choose a can of soda over a carton of milk. Most of them end with contented dinosaurs, leisurely picking their teeth of the caveman's bones. Suddenly, a milky background would come across the screen. Words would appear. It's always been survival of the fittest, they read. Drink milk. That tagline reads a little differently to me now. Working on our milk issue and reading headlines like milk, a symbol of neo-Nazi hate, that's from the cut, and the troubling link between milk and racism, that's from the Huffington Post, has made me realize that there was a darker story hiding in those cartoons and our milk cartons all along. And many of us just had the privilege not to see it. The links became clearer in February 2017, when a group of men, armed with milk cartons, gathered to protest Shia LaBeouf's anti-Trump video installation, He Will Not Divide Us, in Queens, New York. Dubbed the Milk Party, the group was quickly identifiable as white supremacists. They pulled out all the usual stuff—racist, sexist, anti-Semitic, and homophobic taunts— and washed it down with their daily dose of calcium. In the videos, you can see a bare-chested man taking a swig from his carton before approaching the camera to sneer an ice-cold glass of pure racism. Along with the disturbing visions of the sweaty, swaying, shirtless mass, the video brought the public a clear view of an alt-right theory of white superiority, which essentially holds that white people are inherently superior to other races because they've evolved to keep lactase, the enzyme required to digest milk beyond childhood. When we first started to consume dairy products around 6,000 years ago, none of us could digest lactose beyond childhood. Our genes dictated that lactase would vanish as soon as we'd been weaned. The first cattle herders in Europe some 5,000 years ago happened on a chance mutation that left lactase hanging around. This is the basis for white supremacists' attachment to milk, as it's something that they feel makes them special. There are a lot of issues with this narrative, but it's also hinged on a logical flaw, given that a similar mutation occurred among cattle breeders in East Africa. The framing of lactose digestion as inherently superior can be seen even in the way we discuss the issue. The opposite condition of being able to digest milk, lactose malabsorption, is more often referred to in the public lexicon as lactose intolerance. This framing sets lactose digestion as the norm, and deliberately distorts the reality that around 68% of the global population cannot, to some degree, digest lactose. People who are lactase-persistent, the more accurate term, in fact, are the minority, but you wouldn't realize it from the pathologizing terminology of tolerance versus intolerance that's in common use. White supremacists picking up on this biological phenomenon got me thinking about how we came to frame lactase persistence this way in the first place, and what it means to use digesting milk as some sort of signifier of biological destiny. To better understand the connections between lactose digestion, science, and white supremacy, I spoke to Alice Yao, an associate professor with the Department of Anthropology at the University of Chicago.
1: Hi, Isabella.
0: Hi, Alice. Can you hear me okay?
1: Yes, I can. Can you hear me all right? Yes. Yes. Okay, let me see my video, it's awesome. Alice
0: and her research partner, Miranda Brown, a cultural historian at the University of Michigan, are working on a project about the genealogy of lactase persistence and the links between lactase persistence and normative ideas of whiteness. To start off, I asked Alice about the impacts of the linguistic framing around tolerance and intolerance.
1: I mean, tolerance is such a loaded word, um, and the inverse is intolerance, right? And i i there's a certain kind of extremism to that word it's like it's either or you're either one or the other it, and because it's so racially um it um it it, it, ref, it it's in the same frame of reference to other racial ideas right and so here you 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 take a word like tolerant and intolerant as a biological um condition and a fact it it kind of ramifies against racial differences that that um in a way that, that I think can have really dire consequences. Um, milk becomes a master sign for thinking about our racial identities.
0: Alice said that the discovery of lactase malabsorption and persistence and the framing of the former as disease can be linked back to American military hospitals in Puerto Rico.
1: This was uh, a, a kind of an observation made um, by military doctors at in sort of colonial hospitals, basically, um, where they noticed that certain soldiers or military personnel couldn't or was having digestive discomfort associated with milk. And this is a time when the, the US, through these sort of what it really called food for peace programs, where they were going to development programs where they were sort of um, shipping um, American um, you know, food surplus to, to the global south. Um, and milk was one of these, you know, glut supplies that that ended up in, you know, in, the, in tropical regions. And so that was where this condition was first uh, initially um, documented.
0: So the overproduction of milk in the U.S. had to do with why milk suddenly ended up in regions where people couldn't digest it in the first place. The focus soon turned to milk's digestibility at home.
1: And, um, in the 50s, it, um, it there were studies done in prisons on, um, on African-American NIH sponsored studies of, of prisoners, uh, following this kind of, um, observation, uh, the digestion of milk and, and the, the, the kind of, uh, variable responses to, to milk digestion. Um, and it was hypothesized that, that it was, um, The inability to digest milk was a disease prevalent among African-Americans. Later, uh, as anthropologists were sent out into the global South to do fieldwork, um, they noticed they started to to kind of write about food taboos and why certain societies or cultures didn't drink milk.
0: Although the alt-right's Twitter trumpeting of lactase persistence is new, as Alice mentions, the use of milk as a tool of oppression far predates it. Justifying the white, cis, heteropatriarchy builds on a long history of entrenched food oppression, a term coined by scholar Andrea Friedman. Food oppression refers to the act of oppressing racialized communities through food, and it's been done by institutions such as the USDA. In her incisive study, The Unbearable Whiteness of Milk, Freeman shows how the U.S. government has maintained policies of dumping milk products on low-income people of color through supporting the divergence of surplus milk into high-fat products created by big food companies and targeting these in a race-specific way, or forcing milk into school feeding programs, maintaining milk and federal nutrition guidelines, and finally adding milk incentive programs into the Federal Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, also known as SNAP. These policies have a disproportionate impact on racialized women as both recipients of benefits, for example, like SNAP, and feeders of families. They create social pressure to feed kids milk and coerce those with limited purchasing power into buying more of it. And they have adverse impacts on health. Statistics vary, but around 79% of Black adults and 45% of Black children have lactose malabsorption. This means that consuming lactose can result in gastrointestinal distress and other uncomfortable symptoms. And in the long term, consuming large amounts of high-fat dairy is harmful for people's health. Oppression through milk has its roots in colonialist thought. For white supremacists, if drinking milk is the ultimate sign of white manhood, then eschewing milk is akin to reneging on all that makes a man a man. It's from here that the transphobic, pejorative soy boy came into the public lexicon to evoke an image of men whose virility for- really has been sucked dry by the phytoestrogens in soy.
1: Don't disrespect that. People want that. People get mad at soy. Soy is like a political fruit or a vegetable. Is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. People call you a soy boy. If you're a Republican, people call uh, weak men soy boys. That's like a, a, it's an insult.
0: I never knew that. Soy is one of the rare foods that's actually attached to being a bitch. That's a pussy food? That's a clip from a 2020 episode of The Joe Rogan Show. And he does go on to admit that he personally finds the use of the word soy boy as a pejorative a little silly. But it's a great example of how soy has been appropriated into right-wing rhetoric. And misogynistic fears around those who consume soy-based foods are not actually a 21st century phenomenon.
1: Um, and we brought up soy boy so this reminded me of the whole um, Asian peril kind of uh, 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 history in the during the turn of the 20th century Milk, in particular during that era, became a symbol of basically tall um, sort of strong manly man um, of a very European kind of cut, um, juxtaposed against, you know, small Asian, feminine um, kind of archetype,
0: right? stereotype. And that 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 stereotype has a deep kind of history. In an article called White Power Milk, Milk, Dietary Racism, and the Alt-Right, Vasil Sinescu highlights how the quote-unquote effeminate rice eater was a key colonial stereotype that justified colonizers as the more masculine and therefore the natural rulers. This trope was pervasive in research throughout the 19th century, and it helped to justify colonial expansion. And it's still very much alive today. Stanescu notes how in 2015, The Economist published an article entitled No Use Crying, The Ability to Digest Milk May Explain How Europe Got Rich, in which author Justin Cook, an assistant professor of economics at the University of California, Merced, tries to quote-unquote, prove the role of genetic differences in explaining economic outcomes. He argues that for Northern Europeans, digesting lactose allowed them to obtain denser populations, more technological innovation, and therefore wealth which resulted in European colonialism. The most disconcerting part of all of this is how he seems to take colonialism as a given, assuming that, of course, a richer, bigger population with more technology would dominate others with less. As Danescu aptly notes, not once does Cook's research mention the word racism. Today, you can find soy boy everywhere often evoked as a rallying cry against the vegan agenda, essentially a proxy for all things liberal. This, in itself, is fascinating. A long-standing issue with the vegan movement is its centering of white affluent eaters as the norm. Seeing white supremacists position veganism as the arch-nemesis of society feels, in a way, like watching them cannibalize their own in order to maintain patriarchal norms. It speaks to how deeply white supremacists fear the quote-unquote feminine traits of valuing the welfare of animals and the planet. I can't eat this! I can't eat a poor little lamb! Lisa, get a hold of yourself! Saying this, I started thinking that it was ironic that consuming a fluid that comes from a literal breast to be considered the apex of white manhood. But then I realized that perhaps it's exactly this source that evidences the manliness. And along with it, it's associations to domination, violence, and control. You prove your manliness by drinking a fluid that's been forcibly taken from a mammalian breast because the power to commodify, exploit, and control the relationship between a mother and child is yours in an anthropocentric capitalist paradigm. Having this power is what justifies your position at the top of the pyramid. And that's what makes a changing face of society feel like such a threat to these groups, It represents the potential loss of the ability to dominate and to extract. I think back to those caveman milk commercials and the slogan, it's always been survival of the fittest, drinking milk. I didn't know it at the time, but my teenage brain was being imbued with the messaging that only the fittest among us drank the white stuff. What appeared as a harmless cartoon had, in fact, an overt colonialist slant. Building on a long legacy of oppression. The cartoon's message now serves as fodder for the shirtless, angry men chucking milk that we can see on the news. Thanks so much for listening. This has been Feminist Food Journal bringing you an audio story as part of our milk issue. Script writing and research by me, Isabella Vera, sound editing by me and the brilliant Zoe Johnson and original music by the Electric Muffin Research Kitchen. If you'd like to get in touch with us about an idea for a podcast, drop us a line at hello at feministfoodjournal.com.